0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters
1: with Mimi Gerges.
2: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Biden administration wants to move asylum applications from the southern border into the fast lane at the Department of Homeland Security. DHS's Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency now has the authority to hire between 800 and 4,600 new employee positions. The aim is for the employees to rule on asylum cases, avoiding the backlogged immigration courts in the Justice Department. President Biden will nominate Nicholas Burns, a career diplomat, to be the ambassador to China. If the Senate confirms him, Burns will fill a post that's been vacant since October 2020. President Biden has filled 127 out of 800 Senate-appointed positions tracked by The Washington Post and the Partnership for Public Service. NextGov reports said the Department of Veterans Affairs saw a 3% increase in employee vaccinations over the past week. The update comes after the VA expanded its COVID-19 vaccine mandate to all on-site employees, Contractors and volunteers. We'll be discussing the details of this story next. As I just mentioned, COVID 19 vaccination rates for employees at the VA are up 3%. That uptick comes after the VA extended its vaccine mandate to cover nearly all public facing employees. Lee Becker is Solutions Principal at Medallia. He's former Chief of Staff at the Veterans Experience Office. Lee, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here with you.
2: How are uh, VA leaders analyzing uh, vaccination rates following the mandate? What kind of data are they looking at?
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, if we take a step back looking at VA, I, you know, first off, very proud of VA. Uh, for all of us, we should be very proud of them, of, of their leadership um, during a time of the of COVID and thinking about all the incredible people that have served so, so um, honorably. On the front lines, um, VA, as you know, one of the one of the first to actually give out the vaccine to uh, veterans and also to civilians too, as well, and actually now family members, and of course now with the with taking care of their employees, make sure they're all vaccinated. Uh, so just truly tremendous, and you know, just as you think about the technology, um, first off, the culture of VA. Um, the the aspect around hey we have to improve the experience we have to increase trust because trust is a key aspect around to want to take the vaccine so that's that's a piece that frankly we're we're adri- frankly struggling across the country and across the world about the trust aspect how do we make sure that we have to address that this is on the heels of of course we're about to expect any day now uh, Pfizer to approve the vaccine, right, a full approval of it. So I think that's gonna be huge when we see Pfizer, Moderna and J&J both, all three getting um, those approvals. I think that'll be really tremendous um, as well. And then the technology for the VA to be able to adopt the highest tech to te- te- best technology to be able to understand uh, the gaps, uh, whether it is the gaps in trust or the gaps in, you know, where they need to provide the the vaccine. Uh, it's been really tremendous to see that across the board. So. VA leaders, I mean, it's again, it's a war effort. (laughs) We're trying to get this massive logistics done, uh, but to see the VA, you know, taking one step at a time, again, it's not perfect, but take one day at a time and really move the needle is is very, it's great for us to see and for the rest of the agencies to see how to get it done.
2: Well, Lee, let's talk about those logistics that you just mentioned. What are the logistics that go into enforcing compliance with this vaccine mandate?
0: Yeah, so I'll tell you as a am smiling because I was a Navy corpsman and uh, one of the things as a Navy corpsman uh, you get to and a lot of the Marines out there who are listening and other fellow sailors listening uh, know that the corpsmen are the ones that give the vac, give uh, make sure their immunizations are up to date and it's a it's a massive logistics aspect, right? So first of course, being able to understand the current state who's vaccinated, who's not right and understanding all those pieces, understanding the balance of those that may have allergic reactions, may have uh, medical issues, other things that may be addressing it, and then the documentation of it, right? Being able to make sure to, to document it, but also one of the funnest things, I'll tell you, for me, I know "funnest" not a word, but still, uh, was to be take the vaccine, take the immunizations. I remember my time in the military, take it into uh, into a little medical bag, and go to go to to those that you know to the flight line, to the field, and give the vaccines right there, right? So. That and that's logistics aspect, right? So instead of having having them come to my to my clinic to get vaccinated, I would go to them to do that. It's awesome to see some of that type of, uh, you know, principles being applied, uh, you know, now. So at, you know, at VA, they've been they've done, of course, being the largest medical healthcare system, frankly, in the country, but being able to provide flexibility around you know, when to get vaccine, how to get the vaccine, I think has been truly tremendous. But the documentation aspect, I think, has been one of the greatest challenges, um, specifically around the exemptions. Yeah, I wanted to
2: ask you about exemptions, Lee, because there are medical and religious exemptions to the vaccine mandate. So how are those handled? Because I would imagine the religious one could get sensitive.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think this this is a key piece around, um, you know, empathy, right? I think empathy, we need to this turn this time. Uh, this is tough for everyone. Everyone's everyone has been affected by this. It has been either been infected by this COVID vaccine or affected by it, right? So everyone uh, or, or COVID or pan, the pandemic in general, right? So when we talk about this vaccine, you know, the, it is sensitive. I mean, when you have and it, it may sound counterintuitive, when you have someone that says well for a medical how could you have a medical exemption for a COVID vaccine the whole purpose of the COVID vaccine is to, to prevent you to have especially if you have medical issues it's supposed to make sure that you're you know protected in that way you know that being said i think you know again the, the fact that fda hasn't fully approved i mean again it's emergency it's we went through the emergency approvals um it's been amazing the the science around it how quickly it, and we know it's safe but still it's not been fully approved. So for that reason, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ink still, right? And we're gonna see this being approved very, very soon. I have no doubt about that. Um, but until then, um, the the solution for that is that a, 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 the, the employee will need to have documentation uh, from their provider to say that they can't have it, right? They can't take the vaccine. That's typical in any, you know, in, in a, in a workplace, if there's something that, that we're being asked of, of someone that they can't do because of a, um, a medical issue, they're going to need to have that documentation. Of course, HIPAA well, is going to be important. Well, to be Lee, to
2: it sounds like we've just uh, heard that the Pfizer vaccine just got approval. Um, we're just hearing that. So that's uh, that just happened. Right. But what about the religious exemption?
0: Well, that's great news about Pfizer. We're, that is so exciting. Um, so the religious um, exemption is, uh, you know, again, it's, it's important that we need to take in that consideration. I think, you know, the I, I'm very proud during my time working in the federal government as, you know, being Jewish, uh, having the ability to have, to practice, uh, you know, uh, practice that and not having to, again, we have the high holy days coming up. So, uh, you know, I, I think we need to consider that aspect. And that's something that, um, it, again, it requires empathy. Uh, and if if a, an employee has this strong you know religious exemption because of that religious need they can't take it right now then that's something that they need to uh, again it needs to be documented and then that exemption will be be um, addressed that being said those employees need to be aware that they're going to be required to to have you know routine tests uh, you know of course having masks all the time um, etc so there's going to be re- requirements to, to manage that aspect as well. But, you know, again, empathy is the key thing, right? We need to, as leaders, we have to be able to listen, listen to all of our employees. That gets to employee experience, engagement. We have to listen, we have to understand, and then we have to then be able to empathetically act and be able to address it. Even though we're in the midst of a pandemic, I think that's really important. Because again, we have, a lot of emotions are pretty high, uh, and I think empathy is a really key piece to be able to um, address that and work through
2: it. All right, Lee, Well, we're, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being on the program.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Coming next, climate change causing defense, resources, and readiness problems. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why Pentagon leaders say climate change is the problem to face right now. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Pentagon's senior climate advisor, Joe Bryan, says climate change costs defense resources and readiness. The Pentagon wants to approach climate change by increasing resilience and security. John Conger is director of the Center for Climate and Security. He's former principal deputy undersecretary of defense, comptroller. John, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. What would you say are the biggest costs to DOD and the impact to readiness as a result of climate change?
1: So the biggest costs that they've seen so far are the impacts to infrastructure. Um, You've seen hurricane damage, you've seen flooding damage. uh, There's impacts from wildfires. Uh, All of those things carry price tags. And so the bills that the Pentagon is facing in the immediate term or in the near term are the aftermath of natural disasters.
2: There are about 1,700 military installations that are along coastlines that could be affected by rising sea levels and you know, hurricanes, obviously. What should DOD do about that?
1: So uh, in the immediate term, DOD needs to make its uh, infrastructure more resilient. It needs to climate-proof, climate-ready that infrastructure, um, climate-proof uh, its operations and so as we anticipate more and bigger storms or with sea level rise uh, even a smaller storm will have a significant impact on the installation you have to be ready for that you have to be ready to deal with the future and in the same way that we're getting ready for the future of military operations you have to get ready for the future environment and and that means uh resilience
2: you know, the Pentagon has been working on climate-related initiatives. What has their progress been? Where where have you seen the the biggest issues? Well, they're
1: they're getting started. I think uh, they are uh, they're in the planning stage right now. They they've gotten you know, if if you look at the executive order that came out uh, in January, that was a plan to plan. Uh, it said, here are all the plans we need, and so go do it. And so the uh, the Pentagon has been working on those. They're gonna come out with an adaptation plan very soon. Uh, sustainability plan is gonna be coming out. A climate risk assessment is gonna be coming out. All of these things they've been working on uh, to support the future budget requests and so on and so forth. Um, and so they've been, they've been doing a lot of homework. Uh, that's gonna influence uh, the next three years of budgeting and the next three years of operations. Um, but they've been doing their thinking and it's a smart thing to do, right? You want to, you want to proceed with uh, ready, aim, fire, not ready, fire, aim.
2: No, definitely. We want to do that first, but uh, John, what do you do with all those bases? Is it feasible to maybe move them inland or, or how does that work? How do you protect those bases from, from climate change, the effects of climate be- change?
1: I would be careful about talking about moving bases all too much. Uh, first of all, you run into uh, BRAC uh, base realignment and closure rules in that context. Should you take cl- climate impacts and and the utility of the base and the capability of the base into account when you're placing new missions? Sure, um, but uh, but closing a base f- based on a future climate impact and and uh storm risk is probably not the right course of action that's billions of dollars of costs uh i think that in the you know medium to far term as you see more and more climate impacts you might want to start thinking about it then but you know if you if you look at the infrastructure across uh, all of dod bases today we didn't have half the bases uh, we have today, a hundred years ago. So, how we're going to predict what bases we're going to need in the second half of this century? Uh, it, you know, it's going to be based on requirements and capabilities and the various uh, military systems we have then. Um, and so, I wouldn't want to prejudge that. I wouldn't want to jump the gun.
2: Let's talk about the timeline, John. How long do you think it will take to get these bases and installations fully protected? Um, and, and how does that timeline affect military readiness?
1: So I don't, I don't think it's a, there's a threshold for when you're fully protected. It's, it's all about varying degrees of risk. So as we contemplate uh, the need to prepare for bigger storms, the need to deal with flooding and sea level rise, um, for, for example, you, you wanna be thinking about what your biggest vulnerabilities are and what your biggest priorities are, and you're gonna start working down that list. Uh, they need to build that list first. Uh, And and so I'll give you an example. In uh, a couple years ago, Congress asked the Navy to build a, a plan for shipyard infrastructure. And they went through and made a $20 billion, 20 year plan of what they want to invest in their shipyards. Well, one of the first projects on that list, it wasn't a climate change study, but one of the first projects on that list was that the dry docks in Norfolk were too low for sea level rise and they were putting their $2 billion submarines at risk when they when they cut them open to do maintenance. And so they needed to lift those flood walls. And so they programmed the project for $49 million a couple of years ago uh, to make those flood walls higher to protect their submarines. So, so, so they're gonna have to do the homework, do the study, figure out their vulnerability, figure out what their biggest risks are, and then uh, execute the projects. And so they'll do the most important ones first, once they've figured out what they are. Um, and so, Uh, and then they'll work down that
2: list. All right. Uh, So
1: again, it's a dial.
2: All right. Sounds good, John. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Coming up, there's a data problem for understanding inequality at agencies. Up next on Government Matters, the gaps and how to address those equity issues. You can find every episode of our show and subscribe to our podcast at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Office of Management and Budget says agencies need better data and expertise to evaluate equity in their programs. The White House Executive Order on Advancing Equity gave agencies until August 8th to submit assessments. Akeisha Murray is Principal for Change Management, Culture, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility at LMI. Akeisha, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Give me an
2: idea, Keisha, of, of an example of the kind of inequality issues that this executive order is addressing.
3: Oh well, it's vast and broad, Mimi. So the the executive order and what the agencies are directly responding to with respect to these equity, or assessments, equity assessments, excuse me, have to do with uh, federal programs and services. So the Social Security Administration irs all of those federal programs and services that we all uh, are accustomed to using every day where are there inequities or disparities in the accessibility of those programs to underserved communities well now that the deadline has passed
2: uh, to submit these assessments what are we seeing like where are the biggest diversity and equity issues at agencies
3: well i'm really interested to see the reports from those findings as you said They were due August 8th, so I'm sure we'll hear more in the coming weeks. But I think we can already get a glimpse of what to expect from um, the report from OMB. So in July, Shalonda Young, acting director of OMB, submitted a report to President Biden with results of a federal study of the methods that are currently being used for assessing equity in the federal government as it relates to the accessibility of benefits and opportunities that our programs provide. And that report enumerated five key findings. The first one being that there is a broad range of assessment frameworks and data measurement tools to develop um, equity assessments, and that is appropriate. Um, because it's not a one size fits all approach, but this is still very much a nascent and evolving science and practice. So we're all learning as we go. The second is administrative burdens are exacerbated by inequity. So an acknowledgement that yes, there are administrative burdens in our programs, but it's exacerbated at a disproportionate level uh, for those communities who need them the most, leading to underutilization of services. Um, A need for the federal government to expand opportunities for meaningful stakeholder engagement and co-designing those those programs and services with underserved communities. Um, A need for long-term change management and dedicated strategies for sustainability. And finally, the scale of initiatives by the federal government in this space creates an opportunity to advance equity in a way that um, make sure we need to touch on core federal management functions like financial management and procurement.
2: So where do you think agencies should invest their money then,
3: um, Akeisha, and their resources to address these issues? Simple, the federal workforce investments in ongoing learning and training and developing key functions and skill sets, especially with personnel, special with specialized training in data science, evaluation, human-centered and service design, and finally equity-focused change management.
2: So when it comes to measuring success then, okay, let's say they do do those things and they invest in their workforce. Um, how um, How do you measure that? How do you measure
3: success to make sure that they're on track? Well, it's gonna come down to impact. And I think that it's that measurement of impact is something that agencies are still figuring out. OMB's recent study pointed out that given the wide array of agencies, policies and community needs that multiple concurrent methods um, for assessing equity are go- is what's going to be needed. That's what's going to be best. But most notably, the most comprehensive assessments look beyond access, equitable access and seek to identify disparate impacts, whether intended or not. So. We'll we'll know we've been successful when we see a positive change in the accessibility and impact of our government programs and services for all communities. Have we reduced administrative burdens? Do we see more accessible and meaningful engagement of underserved communities? And finally, do we see transparency in the investment and deploying of resources towards those equity initiatives?
2: So, Akisha, how can agencies manage this advancement in equity to make it sustainable and long-term so that it, it continues, the improvement continues, even if there's a change of
3: leadership, let's say? Okay, so I'm going to shift from my diversity, equity, and inclusion hat, and I'm going to put on my change management hat. So, when providing OMB's report to President Biden, Shalonda Young pointed out that the federal government has never before undertaken a whole-of-government equity agenda so this calls for a cultural sea change across agencies and will require them to include equity initiatives in their strategic administrative budget and evaluation plans so you should see it in their agency strategic plans priority goals learning agendas budget requests and justifications that is to say equity initiatives are given the same weight and bearing as any other mission critical function
2: all right, well, we'll watch
3: those assessments
2: as they come out and revisit this again. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you
3: for having me, Mimi, it was a pleasure.
2: Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you think of the show. Follow us on Twitter at TV. You can find the latest updates and a behind the scenes look at our program.